you know that scene? You know the one that it's in like every cop show and courtroom drama or murder mystery. You know, that, that one scene. There, there's, there's that scene where the ace detective or, or the intrepid prosecutor lays out the case where they connect the dots for the audience. They show how all the evidence lines up to point to a certain thing. Oh, oh, it was Colonel Mustard with the wrench in the cupboard. <laughs> There's a great example of that concept in the admittedly low-brow but also kind of hilarious movie Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Watch. Hi. For those of you watching online, I appreciate you logging in. We uh, wish you were here with us on site, but we're glad that you did that. Uh, take a second, and no matter whether you're in the room or watching online when we're all done, uh, fill out your connection card, leave that in the seat uh, next uh, to you. Uh, again, if you're new, uh, we really encourage you to sign up for Wired. Uh, if you're watching online, you want to, like some of our snowbirds I know are in Florida right now, uh, if you want to do the time capsule thing, just email it uh, to the church, info at chapelrock.org. We'll get those, print them, stick in an envelope with your name on it, and, uh, and put it in the time capsule this week. Today, a judgment will be made. On a field of battle, justice will be done. And we will know who the best football team is in the NFL this year. So let's figure this out right now. How many of you are rooting for the Chiefs? And how many of you are wrong? I mean, rooting for the Niners. Um, okay, <laughs> all right, that's okay. So here's the deal. My roommate in college uh, grew up in San Jose, California, just across the bay from San Francisco. Uh, I grew up three hours south of Kansas City, so even from the way I'm dressed, you can tell who I'm rooting for today, all right? I'm having lunch, uh, breakfast with my roommate on Wednesday morning, and I'm kind of going to pitch this idea, so y'all pray for me, that whoever's team wins doesn't have to buy. The, the loser's team has to buy, has to buy breakfast, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but for the last month or so, we've been in a sermon series uh, called Welcome to the Future, and over the last few weeks, we've looked at what our future is now that we're in 2020, right? It's the future. We've looked at our future through the lens of the distant past. Usually, we've started at the beginning, like in Genesis, and kind of worked our way to Revelation. Today, I want to flip that. We're going to start in Revelation, work our way back to Genesis. So open your Bibles or your Bible apps to Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. What I want to do for you today is to connect the dots. Just like Ace Ventura did, I want to unravel this final mystery of God's judgment, how it's related to his justice, and ultimately how it's ex connected to God's expression of his grace to us. Here's what I want to tell you today, and I'm, I, I really want you to get this, okay? Here's our big idea. God's acts of judgment must be seen as acts of justice and an unavoidable aspect of his grace. I'm going to say that again. God's acts of judgment must be seen as acts of justice and an unavoidable aspect of his grace. Now there are four dots that we need to connect. Here's the first one. That God's judgment is final. God's judgment is final. And I know, I know that may sound like a, well, duh, kind of thing to say in church. I, I get that. 
But here in the West, in America, we are so used to second chances and do-overs and people reinventing themselves. It's easy for us to think that that might go on forever. But at some point, the second chances stop. God's judgment is final. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 11. Look at, look at this with me. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who is seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades, that's the New Testament way to talk about people who have died. You know, it's not necessarily hell per se, but it's just, it's the underworld, it's the world of the dead. Gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. The word judged in both of those places that you saw underlined is, is to, to, I mean, it, it's very simple, to make a judgment based on fact. It's that idea that, that there's a, they're going to render a decision based on evidence, okay? Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This image is cosmic, like literally. <laughs> this seems to take place off-planet. It says, earth and sky fled from his presence. <laughs> There's no place for them. And it's easy, real easy, to get distracted by, by some of the details in this text. But there are a few that I want to point out to you this morning. First is that basically every verb pertaining to human beings being judged by God is plural. It's plural. And now, let me tell you why that's important. All right? We have this image in our mind of the, the judgment being like there's this long line of people like leading up to the throne, right? And there's this giant movie screen in the sky and everybody's deeds, good and bad, their best and mo worst moments in life play out on this giant movie screen in the sky for everybody else to see. And at the end of the movie, God goes, ding, or and you go one way or the other, right? I think that might be an exaggeration. I, I, I think that that might be more pop culture than Bible, and here's why. It's all these verbs about judgment are plural. The verbs indicate that this is done in mass. This is not going to be like some unending, like take forever, we got to wait for everybody's movie to play out kind of scene. This is a real, it, it's pretty simple, y'all. Sheep, that way. Goats, that way. The end. It's done in mass. Even the phrase, each person was judged. You see that? Each person was judged? Which would indicate there is an individual personal judgment to this. But it uses a Greek word for each. It's the Greek word hekastos. That means each one of a totality in a distributive sense. In other words, yes, it's each individual, but it's each one of all of them. There's still this collective judgment that's in mind here. 
There are books. Everything you've ever done is written down. It's recorded. Nothing you've ever done has escaped the notice of God. Nothing. I wish I could go back and delete junior high. Nope. So the book of life determines which way you go. At the judgment, there are two groups of people. People whose names are in the book of life and go to heaven, and people whose names are not and go to hell. The end. Final. That's the picture this is painting. The second detail that's really significant is in verse 13, where it says that the grave will give up, literally release or give over, the dead in them. In it. This is talking about a general resurrection. If you want to know what final judgment looks like, it looks like every human being who's ever lived, everyone, everyone who's ever lived will be resurrected into a body and they will be resurrected to life or they will be resurrected to death, but every single one of them will be resurrected. In fact, the word standing in verse 12, I saw the dead standing before God, is related linguistically to the word for resurrection. It's the root word, and and the word for one of the main words for resurrection in the New Testament is that word with the prefix that means again, to stand up again. Last week I had a conversation uh, with a brother here in the church about cremation. Some people have asked questions about that. Is that okay? Can Christians do that? And I pointed him back to Revelation 20.13. Did you see this? It says that the dead, or the grave gave up the dead in it. What do you think has happened to a body that was buried in the dirt, wrapped in a sheet, 4,000 years ago? Their atoms are scattered all over the earth, right? I mean, they've, they've been recycled into a tree that had fruit, that was eaten by a dog, that took care of the fruit. You know what I mean? Like... What, what, what has happened to the atoms of someone who was buried at sea 150 years ago? They're scattered all over the ocean floor, right? If God can reassemble the atoms of someone buried in the ground 4,000 years ago, if God can reassemble the atoms of somebody who was buried at sea 100 years ago, you know, I'm pretty sure he can put back the atoms of someone who was cremated. I think people who think that God can't do that underestimate the power of God. We've only been burying people in a concrete vault for 100 years. We've only been burying people in a steel casket in a concrete vault for about the last 65, 70 years. There there are billions of people for whom God is going to have to literally put their atoms back together. And he can do that because he's God. It comes in the job description. Besides that, consider all those who have been burned at the stake for their faith in Jesus. I don't know if you know this, in the late 200s AD, the Roman Emperor Diocletian issued a a horrendous persecution against Christians. Thousands of them were burned at the stake. Do you think God is going to keep them out of heaven because they were effectively cremated? No. I think they go to the front of the line. Ultimately, the point here is that this is final. (laughs) Hebrews 9.27 says, People are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. 
Romans 10.14 says, Why then do you judge your brother or sister? Why then do you treat them with contempt? We're going to come back and talk about this passage later this year. He says, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Just this week, we saw the frailty and impermanence of human life in the news. In the tragic death of nine people in a helicopter crash in California that, that included basketball star Kobe Bryant and his daughter. We saw it in the loss of racing car driver John Andretti to cancer. And we see it every day in the roughly 7,450 people who die every day in America for various reasons. That God is recording every deed by every person for all time. And one day, the last day of time, he will work his justice. That judgment will be final. And those who claim the blood of Jesus shed on the cross in your place for your sin those who claim the blood of Jesus as their justification, that, that, that the blood of Jesus is what provides justice for them, will have their name written in the Lamb's book of life. And those who don't will be resurrected, but they will be resurrected to eternal death. There's no second chance. Not after that. God's judgment is final. That's the first dot. So we've got to connect the dots. Here's the second dot. Because God's judgment is final, God's judgment must be just. Because it's final, He has to get it right. There's no going back. We can't fix it. It has to be right. <laughs> right? God's judgment must be just. There's no room for error here. And, and there's good news because Jesus is the one doing the judging and he's perfect. Look with me at John chapter 5. Again, we're just kind of working our way backwards from Revelation to Genesis. John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking. All right, look at verse 21. It says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to those to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, as the Father, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, now pay very close attention to Jesus' words here, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, he's connecting this to God's statement, I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. That's what he's referencing here. The Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to judge because He is the Son of Man. So notice Jesus calls Himself both the Son of God and the Son of Man in this one passage. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming. Now notice He did not say a time is coming and has now come. It's just coming. When all who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. 
By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Now this comes right on the heels of Jesus having to defend his authority to heal people on the Sabbath. Jesus teaches that because of God the Son's eternal submission to God the Father, that all of his authority is from God. And he participates in the work of God, even in exacting justice in the final day. (laughs) That Jesus is part of this. In fact, the word translated judged in verse 24, where he says that that those who believe in Jesus um, have eternal life and will not be judged, I think it probably should be connected with the word for condemned in verse 29. They'll not be judged down, (laughs) is what condemned means. They will face judgment, though, Jesus says. The time that has now come, he says, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, is now, y'all. It's the age of the church. That what Jesus is talking about is now. It's current. That's what's happening today. Jesus is talking about those who respond to the gospel, the good news that Jesus, the Son of God who took on human form, died on the cross in your place for your sins, and three days later was resurrected from the dead. That gospel that's available, if you believe that, you can be saved, that you can, when judgment day comes, have your name in the book of life, that that, your eternal life begins now, church. You are eternally alive now, today, this morning, if you're in Christ. God's judgment is just because Jesus is the one doing it. And he's perfect. And all you got to do is turn on the news to see how badly we need perfect justice. (laughs) Yes, I'm going there. It's a far cry from the drama we've seen play out in the Senate this week. Some of you are rooting for the president. Some of you are rooting for Adam Schiff and his team. I want to encourage you all to change who you're rooting for. Got your attention now, don't I? I want to encourage you to root for justice, whatever that looks like, and to do what Scripture commands us to do and pray for our leaders and those in authority over us. Let's do that. Let's root for justice, whatever it looks like. I'll freely confess, I'm confused. Because both sides are telling stuff that doesn't 100% add up. Not to me. Maybe to you. You can have your opinion. You can be wrong. That's okay. Um, (laughs) I think that we need to pray that justice is done because that's the agenda God is pursuing. Embrace a pursuit of justice, whatever it looks like, even if your side doesn't come out on top. See, because God's judgment is final, it must be just. 
And because God's judgment must be just, then, let's connect the dots, God's justice is right no matter what. See, in the Bible, justice is not always what's fair. Justice is what's right in God's eyes. And church, you better thank God for that. Because trust me, on Judgment Day, you don't want fair. Fair sends you to hell. But God is just. Now sometimes fair and just overlap. But God saw that it was just that those who would believe in Jesus and surrender their lives to Him could be saved. That His perfect righteousness covers my sin. Scripture tells us that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, Jesus, we might have the righteousness of God. God calls that just. And God's justice is right no matter what we think about the situation. Let me show you an example from the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses is commissioning, speaking on behalf of God to the people of Israel. It says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, Termites, all the ites, all of them. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, look at this, look, look, look. You must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Now there are two phrases there underlined that offend every modern sense of fairness and justice that we've got. We look at that and we say, how can a God who Scripture says is love command that? And, and, and trust me, trust me, in English, this is bad. You look at it in the original language, it gets harsher. The phrase translated destroy them totally is the Hebrew word harem. It means to place under a ban of destruction. It's the word in Hebrew for total and complete annihilation. If they had an atomic weapon, this would be the word for it. In fact, it's, relu- it's related to the Arabic word harem, which means something completely set apart for one person and one person only. It, it, it's this it's total destruction. Gone. Wiped off the face of the earth. And then he says, show them no mercy. Give them no favor. Give them no compassion is what it means, is just what the word means. But it's like we mentioned last week, in Hebrew it's in the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense implies uh, action that's not complete. In other words, it can be translated, continue to show them no mercy. In an ongoing sense, this is the exact opposite of what happened between Germany and Japan and the United States after World War II, right? In World War II, we whooped the chili out of them. We beat them bad. It was, you know, game over, done. They surrendered. Unconditional surrender. In, in, in the case of Japan, we nuked them. And then what happened? We rebuilt those countries. 
And now they're some of our best trading partners and allies in the whole world. We get along okay. This is totally different. God is saying, wipe them out totally. Don't make a treaty. Show them no mercy. The context here, now both of these seem like major overkill to us. The context here is that God is making good on his promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. That promise was literally part of the covenant that he made with Abraham. What this means is the expression of God's grace or favor to those he loved and was in a covenant with, a covenant relationship with, required him to render judgment and put forth his justice on seven different people groups in the promised land. His covenant with Abraham required him to do that. Say, Casey, what do you mean? God could not fulfill his promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, 16. We're going to look at that in a second. Unless he commanded the Israelites to do this. In the same way, God cannot fulfill his promise to us to eradicate sin forever unless he sends both sin and death to hell. And I know that's hard. And some of you right now are grieved in your spirit because you know someone and you don't think their name is in the book. But there's this saying that I think is true that the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. President Mobutu reigned as the dictator of the Democratic Republic of Congo from 1965 to 1997. But after some global political changes, Mobutu was forced out of power and the country collapsed and descended into conflict and chaos. British pastor Mark Maynell tells the story of his good friend Emma. That's a guy's name <laughs> in, in the DRC. That he's a, Emma is a dude, okay, with a family. And he witnessed many atrocities committed against his friends and family members. He and his wife and three daughters fled the country on foot, went east into Uganda. Weeks later, they arrived there as refugees with nothing. After months of a miserable existence, he walked past a local seminary there in Uganda and felt God calling him into ministry. And he went in and began to talk to the, the people there and, and, and enrolled in the school. And, and, and they, they, I mean, this family had been living in one room without water, without electricity, and only had enough money to buy one meal for the family every two days. Maynell said one evening they were meeting in the seminary's tiny little library there, and Emma started talking. And he opened his heart and he shared the story of the violence and injustice he had witnessed and he started to openly weep despite the fact, I'm told, African men never weep in public, ever. And then Emma said this. He said, you know, Mark, I could never believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God because I will never get justice in this world but I couldn't cope if I was never going to see justice done. Maynell commented, we in the West often recoil from God's justice for a very simple reason. We've so hardly ever had to suffer injustice. Granted, God's mercy, His redemption are greater, but we need His justice too. So let's connect the dots here again. Because God's judgment is final, it must be just. And because God's judgment must be just, then God's justice is right no matter what we think about it. And because God's justice is right no matter what we think about it, then 
Finally, the last dot, God's justice is in harmony with His grace. For many people in the modern world, especially here in the West, this is one of the most difficult things to grasp. They see God's justice against evil as somehow being out of sync with His grace toward people who are in a covenant with Him. And I think if you look all the way back to Genesis, you'll see how they fit together. Look with me. God is speaking to Abraham here in this text. Look with me at Genesis 15, starting in verse 12. Look at this. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish. In Hebrew, that's the word din, or dan, depending on how the grammar dictates it be pronounced. Anybody in here named Daniel? Raise your hand. Anybody? Daniel? Okay. You know what your name means? God is my judge, right? God is my judge. Th- this, this is the, the word here in Hebrew, Dan, means judge, or the, you know, in the verbal form, justice. <laughs> he says that God will bring justice on the nation that they serve as slaves. That's Egypt. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions, You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Look at this, look. For the sin of the Amorites, remember all the ites we looked at before? The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. It's not yet complete. Now, here's one application of this text. You may have a long, hard road before you receive justice. Israel had 400 years of brutal oppression and the dispossession of a homeland. But that, you may have a long, hard road, but that does not mean that God is not at work. You may have been treated unfairly. You may have been treated unjustly in this life, but that does not mean that God is not at work in your life. He will bring justice. It will be done. Sometimes for reasons we don't always understand, God's justice is delayed and only seems to take place, if it even happens in our lifetime, far too late, at least for our, on our time scale. But the unavoidable fact is that God could not, and from a geopolitical standpoint, would not fulfill his promise to Abraham to give him the promised land without first allowing the Amorites, here used as a stand-in for all the Canaanite people, to experience God's justice for their wickedness. He said it's not yet complete. God knew the trajectory of their sin. He knew their future. He knew they're going to get worse. And, and we got to wait until they're at their worst for judgment to be just. In other words, in order for God to show favor and grace to Abraham, the Amorites had to experience God's justice. Now here's where all the dots connect. The word translated punish in verse 14 is the same Old Testament word for judge. It's it's the same idea as Revelation 20. We're all the way back at the end of the book again. Listen to me. God is right when he judges the wicked. God is right to do justice on fallen human beings because to do otherwise would demean the power of grace. Let me tell you one more story and we're done. A friend of mine 
the guy who initially set me on my journey of getting healthy and losing weight and getting in shape, seven years ago, was struggling with this very issue. And, and he said, hey, I've got some questions about Scripture. Could we meet and talk about it? Yeah. That's like throwing, throwing red meat to a dog. I'm like, yeah. So we had lots of long conversations around his dining room table talking about this issue. And I brought up a lot of the same points to him that I, I raised to you today. And he was still fighting it, still struggling, still not ready to accept what Scripture says. And then one day, out of the clear blue, he just called me. He said, hey, I think I got this justice and judgment thing sorted out in my head. <laughs> I was like, that's awesome. What, what was it that I said that helped you? He goes, well, it wasn't anything you said. What was it? And this is what he told me. I wrote it down so you could see it. He said, well, I figured that if I'm willing to accept salvation from God on his terms, that kind of nullifies my right to have any input on who he'll save or who he'll judge. He sets the terms, not me. And if I've chosen to accept his terms for me, I have to accept his terms for everybody else. Yeah, that's what I meant. Um, <laughs> wow. So let's connect these dots. Because God's judgment is final, it must be just. And because God's judgment must be just, then God's justice is right no matter what we think about it. And because God's justice is right no matter what we think about it, then God's justice is in harmony with his grace. And because God's justice is in harmony with his grace, then you can be saved. He has provided a way for justice to be done and for you to be saved. And that way is Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross in your place for your sin, he said, it is finished. Now, he meant that the work of redemption is done, but he also meant in that statement that God's justice had been accomplished. That the justice of God had been met. You will receive justice one day. How you receive it depends on one thing. Is your name in the book? Because if it's not, you can have it written in by the grace of God today, signed in Jesus' own blood. We're going to stand and sing in just a second. And if you've never done this, you can come forward. Confess your faith in Jesus. Acknowledge that he died for you on the cross. Be baptized. Receive the Spirit. Begin that life of discipleship and have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. You've got a choice once you connect the dots. You can surrender to the justice of the cross and begin to work for justice in this world. Or you will be forced to face the justice of the books. Your future is just, one way or the other. And if you choose justice, then that day becomes a day of rejoicing. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and just listen as Tyler sings, and then you join in when, well, you'll know. <laughs>